Hello and welcome to Hardly Flowering. It's me, Catherine, and today I'm going to be talking about autumns. Since we're now in September, we're starting to feel the fall vibes, as it were. And I'm also going to be talking about aestheticism. Not that I'm an expert on either of those topics, but it's something that I've been thinking about. And as you can tell, I have taken my time thinking about these things. I was meant to release this episode on Monday, but it is now Friday, and I'm finally recording it. Uh, yeah, there's just life happened. Right, so what started me on this whole thought is actually Twitter, which is probably bad. I know I spend too much time on Twitter, but it's a place where at this time of year in particular, we really see people meditating on their aesthetic. And it's something that people talk about unironically, you know, in a very sincere and heartfelt manner. I do it myself, obviously. I'm very dedicated to pursuing my aesthetic, but it's a time of year where we kind of pause, or at least me and my weird friends pause, and think about this. We think about creating a culture of beauty in a different way and in a weirdly unified way. Like everyone knows what a fall aesthetic is, but there and there's a sort of culturally agreed upon unity of what colors are fall colors. And I know part of that is determined by nature and by the seasons, but there's no reason that, you know, certain types of photos, I'm trying to think of a great example, but um you know, like for, let's say the cup of hands holding steaming coffee and you're wearing a, I don't know, a beanie and plaid, just for the most stereotypical image I can think of. There's no reason that shouldn't be a more wintry vibe, but we've just agreed that it's a fall thing. And I think this got me thinking about the aesthetic movement in, I guess, mostly British art at least the kind I'm thinking of in the 1860s to 90s, roughly. Obviously, I'm not an art historian, and art historians have much better ways to discuss this movement. But inspired by some of the aestheticism that I've been seeing in real life, I turned back to that in my mind, and I began just thinking over their ideas, and I want to kind of make a comparison between that movement with all of its wonderful things and all of its glaring flaws and compare it to the way that we have a sort of online performance today, especially with what I'm going to call like the ideology of autumn that arises around this time. And not not even just Halloween, just sort of the, the types of language and poetry and thoughts that we're really attached to at this time of year. So, um, Obviously, the, I don't, well, Catherine, get it together. I cannot speak. I'm just going to assume that you, the listener, know something about the aesthetic movement if you don't Google it, which is what I did when I started thinking about these things, like last Thursday. So I've been meditating on this for a total of a week, so I am by no means an expert. But the, the sort of central idea of aestheticism, which, and it, this, it's a very difficult movement to define because even within it, 
there was a lot of disagreement and there were many prominent figures which rose and fell. Some people say Oscar Wilde was kind of the rise and fall of aestheticism. Other people would say, um, you know, that's not the case at all. It's more like James McNeil Whistler or began with Walter. Um, what's his face? My gosh, I'm going to forget his name. Pater? Whatever. You know what I mean. Um, but there's the central sort of idea is dissociating art from concepts of strict morality or strict, um, so the, the sort of one-to-one -one signification that had previously, a little earlier in the Victorian era in England, enjoyed the foremost place in art. And this is something, uh, Catherine, I'm sorry, I'm trying to explain it without giving my opinion, but my opinion just keeps slipping out. So I'm going to shove that back or get to that later. Um, so subsequent critics, as well as some people on the French variant of this movement, who then had a lot of influence on the English movement, which had influence on the French movement, and it's just a giant circle of influencing people. Um, but the phrase art for art's sake emerged sort of encapsulate all of these different ideas that were coming together to create the aesthetic movement. And the idea is that um, everything you use should be beautiful and everything that's beautiful is useful. And beauty is made to be by this movement an end in itself. It's not something that moves us to contemplate the sublime in a more spiritual or general sense. Beauty is the sublime. We contemplate beauty. And so it's a very sort of slippery shift and a difficult way to talk about. And I think today, especially me and my, again, <laughs> random friends who actually think about these things, we're a lot more influenced by asceticism than we realize. Um, for example, when I began researching this, I realized that most of the prints I have up in my room are actually a part of the aesthetic movement, but I didn't do that on purpose or realize I was doing it. Like as I record this episode, I'm looking directly at a print of a painting by Whistler. Um, it's the arrangement in gray. So it's like the older woman sitting in a chair and you see her profile and you know, she's wearing a black dress and the wall is gray and everything's gray. And I just absolutely love it because gray is my favorite color. But these ideas and things have really stuck with us in ways that sometimes I think we're not consciously aware of and ways that have become particularly associated with the idea of creating your own aesthetic or living your mood board or any of the things that people say that, um, I mean, it's a lot of people tend to mock these things and it's certainly very easy to, but when you take them seriously, as I'm arguing you should, and think about them within the larger movement of artistic asceticism, they make a lot of sense. And not only that, but they're really interesting in seeing how we can discuss aesthetic performance in the modern context, which is largely online. So the idea of like curating, uh, get into opinions, fine, I'm just going to make the transition. Um, but the idea of curating your Twitter feed or your Pinterest to make it something beautiful and inspirational, but also something that expresses your aesthetic, the sort of personal brand and personally branded idea of beauty that you want to promote in the world. That's something that's very reminiscent of aestheticism. And I have here um, 
one of the things that I read, like obviously I was reading a lot of articles to get this information. And you know, you can go to JSTOR and read all the art journals, which is super fun. Would definitely recommend that. The VNA has a lot of really interesting um, discussions about aestheticism, just especially because they did an exhibition. Oh, what was it? It was on um, the rooms of the aesthetic movement, the physical spaces that this movement created. I, I don't know when they did this, a few years ago, I guess, but they released some videos about it. I should totally have prepared for getting the name of that episode that they released. Hang on. Let me try and find it. I'm just gonna do a horrible thing and Google it right now while I'm talking to you. One sec. Okay, what did they call that thing? Blah, 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 blah. My gosh, what was the name of their exhibition? I'm gonna be so annoyed if I can't find it. And there was like a really hilarious, honestly, but also interesting video. Um, oh, that's what it is. Filthy Lucre. It's Whistler's Peacock Room reimagined. That's why I was just thinking of Whistler as well. Yeah, that's the exhibition that I was thinking of. And you can still see it online. Um, it's their it's on their website, vnam.ac.uk collections aestheticism, with a lot of really great um, aesthetic pieces. There were some really interesting articles, even just their introduction to aesthetic, the aesthetic movement, I thought was really fun. Um, just, it was well put together, at least as it seems to me, who is not an expert. Um, and then, but anyway, shifting back away from that, where I was going with this before, um, when I was doing some of my research, thinking through all of these articles that I was finding, whether that's in art, art journals or on the VNA or the British Museum had one or two that were pretty interesting. Um, I also started to read a few primary text sources, but obviously I was too lazy to do a lot of that. Um, so I just read the preface to Studies in the History of the Renaissance um, by Walter, I'm not sure how to say his last name, I should totally have, I, it's just one of those things that obviously you, you see it a lot written down, but I've never actually discussed it with anyone, and it's like a bit late now to try and figure it out. I'm just gonna say Pater, just gonna, that's probably wrong. Anyway, I was reading the preface of his studies in the history of the Renaissance, and it is both a really beautiful essay, but also kind of, I think, shows the difficulties with the aesthetic movement and almost the way in which it traps itself. And I think the difficulty is the substitution of beauty as the final end. I mean, obviously, as you probably have guessed by now, if you know me or have listened to the previous episodes, I'm much more committed to an Aristotelian to mystic kind of view on beauty, one that fits in with theology and the way that I see the world uh, more broadly and the way that it is. Um, but obviously the aesthetic movement is trying to move away from traditions like that. 
I think from what I've read anyway, that they were looking at what was genuinely overdone and kind of awful artistically and terrifically in some cases in the earlier Victorian period where everything in art is, has this one-to-one -one correlation in symbolism. There's only one right answer to every question and all of the art has to tell a story and it has to tell you um, how to behave in sometimes ways that are not necessarily open to that kind of strict definition, especially matters like, um, you know, the strict rules for love and courtship and all of the art is supporting this and all of the essays and poems that are being written. And obviously not to say that that was the case at all because you have a thriving Gothic tradi tradition, but there was a, a kind of a mainstream, very conformist movement as far as I understand. Um, and then obviously it's art, there's always people doing whatever they want. But the preface here seems to be directly responding to that perception of a conformist mainstream and rebelling against it. So I'm just going to read some quotes from it. It would make more sense if you went and read it. Just Google it. It's available online. Um, but we're going to start with his definition of beauty. So. Um, in the first paragraph, about halfway through, he says, um, beauty, like all other qualities presented to human experience, is relative, and the definition of it becomes unmeaning and useless in proportion to its abstractness. To define beauty, not in the most abstract, but in the most concrete terms possible. Not to find a universal formula for it, but the formula which expresses most adequately this or that special manifestation of it is the aim of the true student of aesthetic. So he's not subtle in this at all. Um, he's rejecting any sort of objective definition of beauty. And this, you know, works fine if you want to commit to that sort of moral relativism. I don't feel like it's sustainable, especially as we see later on in his own preface. But if you do want to just pursue beauty according to your personal experience, that's fine. But then I'm going to flip the page here. As he says, just on like, in, in the next paragraph down, um, <laughs> oh, it's so funny. I just can't help it. <laughs> I'm scanning over it again. I have the quotes picked out, but I just want to read the whole thing, but I cannot because this is already going to be way too long. But he goes through this whole, um, and he, so he defines beauty as relative, and then he begins to shape how he feels you should experience beauty and how you should respond to it. And he has a little mini dialogue with himself where, you know, he's imagining himself as the viewer of something beautiful or not. And he says, why, why is this song and picture engaging? but it's almost like he's modeling here how to experience beauty in the very specific ways that he thinks you should. And he then begins to answer his own questions. Um, he who experiences these impressions strongly and drives directly at the analysis and discrimination of them need not trouble himself with the abstract question, what beauty is in itself or the exact relation to truth or experience metaphysical questions as unprofitable as metaphysical questions elsewhere. So he's arguing that if you're moved emotionally by something beautiful using the little 
catechism of question and answer that he conveniently <laughs> includes for your use here, you won't need to understand what beauty is because you'll just experience it. And there is something in this idea that I think points to a great truth, but the way he's expressing it and the, the sort of relativism that he was very much committed to earlier in that first paragraph by his definition, to me, it seems at odds with this. So you can't say that beauty is all relative. It doesn't really matter what it is. You'll just know it when you see it work so far. But then if you're going to give a sort of catechism of how to experience beauty, you're already being a bad relativist. Not only, and I mean, obviously there is the sort of self-enclosed circle with relativism. You're saying that, you know, you can't make definitions as to what beauty is because that's, you know, being too committed to one certain type. Um, but obviously that's what he's just done. And that's the whole point of this preface is to, so that you can experience beauty according to your buddy Walter and never really worry about it again. Um, so moving on from that, again, I'm kind of just rambling through this. Uh, let me see. The, where's the bit about temperament? That was one that just blew me away. Oh, here it is. So it's like a couple paragraphs down. He said, what is important then is not that the critic should possess a correct abstract definition of beauty for the intellect, but a certain kind of temperament, the power of being deeply moved by the presence of beautiful objects. You will, uh, so I'm just, I'm just going to pause there. So if we define the ability to be moved by beauty as something that's a temperament, this is an idea that's been played with philosophically for, you know, a long time. Like what's the, what's the temperament of an artist and whether other people without an artistic temperament can appreciate art or whether good art is only appreciated by those who just get it. And if you don't get it, then you're just, you're bad. It's not like the art is bad. It's you as a person who are defective as the viewer. Um, the idea that you need to learn to appreciate art is actually pretty controversial. And the idea of whether you even can learn to appreciate art, he's saying you can't. Like, if you weren't born just naturally spouting poetry into this world of wonder, you're just never going to understand a poem. And I don't think that's fair, especially because according to his little catechism above, it's all relative to you. So if this isn't beautiful to you, then it's objectively not beautiful. But then the idea of the artistic temperament implies a kind of exclusion where some people are going to be really attuned to the color of every flower and they're just going to see these things and the world is more rich in this way to them. But other people obviously are not going to be, they have to be excluded or you can't define some temperaments as artistic and some temperaments as not. So already I feel as though this is really beautiful and a kind of aesthetic imagination, but it's not holding together in concrete terms of what you can actually achieve. So continuing on the next sentence from the one I just read, he will remember he, the um, artistic temperament person will remember always that beauty exists in many forms to him. All periods, types, schools of taste are in themselves equal in all ages. There have been some excellent workmen and some excellent work done. So 
this is interesting. He develops this idea later in the paragraph, but even just with that little bit that I read to you, what the heck? Like, what is he on about? So on the one hand, he's trying to embrace the beauties of all cultures, because remember he said beauty is relative, he's really committed to that idea, um, which isn't a bad idea, but we're going to get to that later. Um, but he's really committed to beauty existing in many different media. That, I think that's what he means by forms. We would kind of say media today. Um, all, you know, whether that be sculpture or fashion or building a chair or painting or singing or poetry, whatever it is, there is a beautiful element to that. But then he goes on and he just gets super judgy about the work. He says, you can have any type of um, beauty that you want and you can express it in any way that you want. But obviously when the, the true student of aesthetics is looking around, he should only pursue those things which are going to be good work, right? Which are in good taste. So I just don't see how that ties together with everything that he's been saying earlier. And then I also find it really interesting that he chooses the workmen and work. He uses the word work here to express what he means by beauty. He's not saying, he's not claiming that there's some sort of deep humanity or deep human nature, human experience, which all good art reaches towards and appeals to. He's saying, if it's well-crafted, it's objectively going to be the good stuff, right? If we have good workmen doing good work, that is the beauty but which we can pull out of any form. And so that's the kind of universality that he's chosen to pursue. And it's surprising to me that he would, that he would go there, just given everything he said earlier about experience and about relativism, because this is something to deal with, I would almost think, a platonic form. Like there are some chairs which are objectively better than others because they're a better, you know, incarnation of chairness, if you want to put it that way. And they're objectively doing a better job of being a chair. And there are some chairs which have only two legs and you can't really sit on and there's some nails sticking up through the bottom of the chair. So if you sat on it, get poked by a nail and that's objectively a worse chair. It's lacking and deficient as a chair. But he's almost viewing art the same way. He's saying if you're a good workman, you will produce good artistic work. But again, if you're just of the artistic temperament, are you working when you do art? Or is it something essential to your being that you can't live without? Something that fills every aspect of your life, which is how a lot of other people have interpreted the aesthetic movement. And that's why, you know, in Whistler's house, in that um, exhibition that I keep forgetting the name of, Filthy Luke Earther is, um, Whistler has everything is art. Everything is beautiful because the idea is that art should penetrate every aspect, chairs and tables and tiles and your food and your clothes and the types of things you say and the types of people you know, art is supposed to dictate, in a sense, all of that for you. But that is work. But can we define art in terms of work? He seems to just assume that we can here. So he's, he's very much casting about to a lot of beautiful and different ideas, but that don't necessarily, for me, make a harmonious whole. 
I, um, by the way, <laughs> I suppose the idea of eclecticism is tied to the aesthetic movement. The, you know, even again, thinking back to Whistler's house, you have each room dedicated to a different sort of um, culture, which in many ways now is perceived as offensive and him appropriating their cultures. But his idea, I guess, at the time would have been to experience what we're talking about here in this preface, the different forms of beauty that exist in different schools. And even though he may have been really uninformed about, you know, what, let's say, Muslim art actually looks like, he was trying in a, in a weird way. So already there's just so much going on here. The preface is not that long and I'm only about halfway through. I feel like there was one other thing that I wanted to talk about with it. So annoying when you print PDFs, at least my printer, it doesn't like put the notes where you put them, they're random places. Oh, this bit here, the next paragraph. Um, when he talks about the artists who are working cleanly, he does this big dig at Wordsworth, which again, ah, oh, it just contrasts with his idea earlier about the work producing, the workmen producing good work. So he's talking, he's complaining here about how um, a good poet like Wordsworth he has the genius, the artistic temperament, the true poetry burning within him, but he keeps changing it. He doesn't trust his first poetic instinct. He puts in all this work, right? Um, so he he says here, the heat of his Wordsworth genius entering into a part of the entering into the substance of his work has crystallized a part, but only a part of it. And in that great mass of verse, there is much which might well be forgotten. Um, but scattered up and down, sometimes fussing and transforming entire compositions like the stanzas on resolution and independence and the ode on recollections of childhood, sometimes as if at random tuning a fine crystal here and there in a matter that does not wholly search through and transform, we trace the action of his unique incommunicable faculty, that strange mystical sense of a man's, of a life and natural things and a man's life as part of nature, blah, 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 blah. blah. Um, he goes on and says a lot of very fancy poetic things there. But then he just says, well, that is the virtue, the active principle in Wordsworth's poetry. Um, and then the function of the critic of Wordsworth is to trace that active principle, to disengage it, to mark the degree in which it penetrates his verse. So he's complaining that this artistic impulse is not burning true enough, even in a poet like Wordsworth, who he clearly admires. And so he's he's saying that the aesthetic critic needs to look at the poetry and determine which parts are actually the crystallized genius of imagination. And it makes it more complex because Wordsworth keeps tinkering with these things. But the way he talks about good art now the heat of genius and the imagination is a sort of a, I guess it's almost like a kind of a gothic or neo-gothic interpretation of this, where things just kind of arrive to you in this inspired sense, or you know, you're moved by states of horror or fear or whatever, but he's just saying that you should be moved by genius. And that does not really square with what he said in the previous paragraph about workmen producing good work, and that's what makes things tasteful or good art. So it's just very scattered. And although it's sort of beautiful, I think what he's trying to do is 
he's trying to reach towards, uh, I hate to do this, but obviously I'm going to bring St. Thomas back into it. He's trying to reach towards um, the way that Thomas defines beauty. And he's trying to reach towards, that, you know, ideas of clarity or radiance where th beautiful things are genuinely apparent. But at the same time, that doesn't mean they're not objective. Like some things can be objectively beautiful and some things can be objectively less beautiful. The idea that there's a sort of ordering to things and in that order, we can find what is beautiful. And so I'm not going to, I'm trying to speak about aestheticism. I'm not going to jump into St. Thomas. Um, but I think that what we're seeing in this movement is a kind of a wish for those categories that arise from seeing and perceiving a good. And I think that if we're reading a text like this preface with a more optimistic understanding, we not only see the kind of language circles he runs into get all his ideas across, but then contradict the last ones and just sort of make the head the tail and the tail the head. But we can take the ideas from this that are genuinely interesting and exciting and beautiful and translate them into something that makes more coherent sense within um, a worldview. So how long have I been talking? I feel like it's been too long. I don't want to, oh my gosh, 29 minutes. These episodes get longer and longer. Anyway, <laughs> I'll try then to wrap up by comparing this to aestheticism. And maybe I'll have to, I'm going to have to make another episode about um, Thomistic, a sort of Thomistic aestheticism. I haven't quite finished formulating this, but I think that it would be a really valuable and exciting movement. And oh my gosh, can you imagine writing the manifesto of Thomistic aestheticism? <laughs> I should totally do that. Or actually a more qualified person should. So if any more qualified people are listening, please do that. Um, anyway, back to where we started with this, which is autumn. I think that, oh, I mean, I guess this is just me speaking from my own experience. Again, not very objective in spite of everything I said about finding objective standards for things. But it's a thought struck me while I was having all these ideas and kind of letting them ferment in my mind. The I, the beauty of autumn is so intense and it's a, for me, it's a very personal experience every year. It's always been my favorite time of year. And I know part of it's because I just love school and school starts and that has always been exciting to me. Um, but also because it's everything's last, last hurrah, I guess, if you want to put it that way. It's this intense burst of color and movement and excitement, but it's in the face of death and bleakness. And it's, it lends itself really well to the idea of art for art's sake, because it's this sort of beauty for beauty's sake in, in autumn. Like the leaves, I'm sure that there's a great scientific reason for why leaves change, and I understand the sort of eighth grade biology level of, you know, the chlorophyll changing, blah, 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 the evening and whatever signaling changes to the tree. But in a sort of artistic experience sense, trying to get into the spirit of aestheticism here, um, it doesn't seem like all of the change is for anything. Like in summer, I know what things are for, or in spring, you know, the seeds are coming out because they need to 
have leaves and they need to be out in the sun that then they need to basically just repopulate so that they can live another year and the flowers are so that they can have pollination and there's just there's reasons for all these things but for a lot of the autumnal beauty the reasons aren't quite as apparent i mean obviously the trees are dropping nuts everywhere which is you know they're reproducing there's going to be seeds around but for most things they're just kind of dying like the grass shouldn't look beautiful when it dies but it does because just like the way the color slowly fades and the way that it crackles when you walk on it this is just way more exciting than it has to be um and you know like there's no baby animals running around but instead we're seeing um just more uh, how can i explain this we're just seeing a beauty that's kind of dissociated from the production element of earlier in the year. We have the harvest going on, but at least kind of around where I am and my limited experience of gardening, that's kind of finished. Everyone's got their tomatoes and their zucchini and they're done now. Um, you're waiting on pumpkins, but honestly, those never come up because something always eats them. So like, Basically, the natural beauty that you're seeing around you is just this vibrant burst before the end. And I guess there's something really beautiful at staring into the upcoming winter, but knowing that right now the sun is shining. And I think that lends itself really well to this movement of aestheticism. And that's why we, we feel that and we, we reach towards it, especially as we try and communicate even if it's through something like a really well put together tweet um but I just I guess that's like all I have to say but I wanted to encourage you to think about that and share your thoughts with me just because it's an it's something that I think could be a really beautiful and fruitful discussion to talk about the aesthetics of fall and how we're affected by these ideas of what is art and what is beauty and how we put it all together. So if you think about this or have any answers or questions, hopefully answers because I only have questions myself, um, obviously text or email me. Um, the email for this podcast is hardlyflowering at gmail.com. Um, I guess you can find me on Twitter as well. And yeah, until next time. Thank you for listening.